Hello and welcome to Fant Line with Marvin Fant. And today's message is taking care of God's temple, health tips for men. You know, over the years, I've come to see that many of us being Christian don't take the word of God seriously when it comes to the um, our temple, our bodies. Too many overindulge with um, drinking, smoking, bad eating which leads to various sickness and disease God gives us warnings and we don't heed to it and then we come running to him to get us out of it but clearly he tells us to take care of our bodies For instance, go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. And it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You know, after age 40, for reasons that may be hormonal, the prostate gland begins to enlarge from 20 grams and it may grow to almost 100 grams. As it enlarges, it squeezes the urethra and the man begins to notice changes in the way he urinates. His urine stream is weak. He can't travel long distances and sometimes it may come straight down on his legs because after urinating, it still drips. Hesitancy. At this point, you wait longer for the urine to flow to start. There are two valves that must open for you to urinate, the internal and external spinsters. Both open, but because of obstructions in the urethra, you wait longer for the flow to start. Incomplete emptying. You have this feeling immediately after urinating that there is still something left. As all these things start to happen, the bladder begins to work harder to compensate for the obstruction in the urethra. The frequency of urination goes up. Urgency sets in. Sometimes you have to practically run to the toilet. Nocturia also becomes common because you wake up more than two times at night to urinate. Stored urine gets infected and there may be a burning sensation when urinating. Stored urine forms crystals. Crystals become or rather come together to form stones either in the bladder or in the kidney. Stones may block the urethra. As chronic urinary retention sets in, the bladder stores more and more urine. As the bladder stores more urine, it can enlarge, but an overfilled bladder may leak and this tends to uh, lend a bedwetting and urinary incontinence. Also, the volume may put pressure on the kidney and may lead to kidney damage. So what may likely bring the man to the hospital is acute urinary retention. He wakes up one day and he's not able to pass urine. Everything I've described is associated with prostate enlargement, technically called benign prostate hyperplasia there are other diseases of the prostate like prostitis inflammation of the prostate prostate cancer cancer of the prostate and this is on prostate enlargement now there is some news here also the good news is that there are lifestyle changes that can help 
men over 40 to maintain optimum prostate health. Like nutrition. Look at what you eat. 33% of all cancers, according to the U.S. National Cancer Institute, is related to what we eat. Red meat every day triples your chances of prostate disease. Milk every day doubles your risk. Not taking fruits, vegetables on a daily basis quadruples your risk. Tomatoes are very good for men. If that is the only thing uh, you can get, you can get to eat as far as a vegetable. And I know it's qualified as a fruit and I, I still don't get that. But anyway, tomatoes are good for you. Which, if you don't eat it, basically what I'm saying is vegetables, it quadruples your risk. So, incorporate vegetables in your diet. And talking about tomatoes, it also has loads of lycopene. Lycopene is the most potent natural antioxidant. Foods that are rich and zinc are also good for men, like nuts, eggs, and dark chocolate. Zinc is about the most essential element for male sexuality and fertility. Men need zinc more than women. Every time a man ejaculates, he loses 15 milligrams of zinc. And zinc is also important for alcohol metabolism. Your liver needs zinc to metabolize alcohol. Also exercise. Exercise helps build the muscle tone. Every man should exercise daily. Men over 40 should avoid high impact exercise like jogging because it puts pressure on the knees. A brisk walk is recommended. Sitting. When we sit, two-thirds of our weight rests on the pelvic bones. So again, if you are grossly overweight, you know, that's doing some damage to your pelvic bones. Men who sit longer are more prone to prostate symptoms. So don't sit for long hours. Try to get up and walk around as often as you can and sit on comfortable chairs when you have to sit. Dressing. Men should avoid tight underwear. And I can't stand tight pants. I don't know how they do it these days, especially these days when you got so many skinny jeans walking around. I just don't see how they get into it. But anyway, it impacts circulation around the groin and heats it up a bit. While the psychological temperature is 37 degrees, psychological temperature, excuse me, is 37 degrees, the groin has an optimal temperature of about 33 degrees. And tidy whities is a no-no. Wear boxers. Wear breathable clothing. Again, getting back to how today's society is with today's men, they got these real tight pants on. Mm-mm, can't do it. Smoking. Avoid smoking. It affects blood vessels and impacts circulation around the groin. Sex. Regular sex is good for the prostate. Celibates are more prone to prostate illness. While celibacy is a moral decision, it is not a biological adaptation. Your prostate gland is designed to empty its context regularly. And there you have it. Enough said. Hello and welcome to Fant Line with Marvin Fant. And today's topic is financial freedom. And I'm here with Janita Jackson, Chief Financial Consultant of Infinite Potential Financial Consulting. And Janita, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? Great, great. It's raining here in uh, Anderson, South Carolina. How's it where you're at? What was that? 
I'm sorry, bre- breaking up a little bit. Okay. All right. Um, I have a few questions here for um for us to to um learn from and and grow in our in our finances. So let's get started. All right. Yeah, we definitely can. Can I take a second just to introduce? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, by by all means, by all means. Sounds great. And uh, where are you based? Janita. Well, our headquarters are in Alabama, and we have a satellite office in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes, can you hear me? Yes, um, it's a little, it's a little Um, the first question I have is um, saving money. What is the uh, percentage of people you come across that save or, or try to save money? So, okay, I, I want to say that out of the percentage of people that I come across about um, 
so you can at least get a baseline for where you are and see stuff as it pops on your report. All right, that's good to know. Can you still hear me? Janita. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Okay. All right, just having, still just having to um, work out these um, technical difficulties. Okay, my next question is this. How essential is having good credit versus bad credit in buying a home or a car? Explain the, and you didn't even stop to ask a question about it. And explain what is the APR. APR is your annual percentage rate that you're paying. Right. And any loan that you qualify for, even people who apply for credit cards, you know, you get a statement and it's usually in bold and they tell you what your APR is. So if a person is applying for a credit card because they don't have any credit, a lot of times they'll get an APR at like 24.99% starting off. Well, they're going to pay more over time if they're carrying balance on that credit than somebody who has good credit that may have a 0% APR or like a 1% APR. Okay. And uh, what is a good credit score? A good credit score. Uh, the, so for FICO purposes, credit scores start from 350 and they go up all the way up to 850. A good credit score and I'm just saying good, is considered to be anything in the 600 range, preferably above 620. At a 620, you can actually qualify to purchase the home. At a 640, you can qualify to purchase the home and actually be eligible for down payment assistance programs if they have them in your your area. Anything higher than a 640 is actually considered more so ranging from good to excellent credit score. Anything over 7 is considered to be excellent credit. So, would so that, a bad credit. Hmm? So would that be called an a, a, a one? Yes, a one. Like you walk in, they roll out the red carpet because they absolutely want to do business with you because right. they want you to spend your money with them. Versus if you have like a three fifty credit score, a four fifty credit score, five fifty, you know, anything below six hundred, where you're going to be put in a position where you may have to go to buy your pay your dealer. Mm-hmm. Your interest rate is going to be high, and you'll actually spend more money over time. So is it's kind of like riding. It's kind of like saying you riding first class versus coach. It, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> you know, first class. 
Do you want the blankets, the pillows? Yes, we get you something to drink. Versus your seat is back there, close to the latrine. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's exactly how it is. Good. That's a good analogy for good credit versus bad credit. Okay. Uh, what is the best way to bolster your score? What's the best way to bring it up? Or some some of the ways. Um, you need to focus on credit mix. For some people, they don't have credit. And so when you don't have credit, it is, in order to bolster your score, you do have to have a credit card. A lot of people don't know that. If your credit score is not at a point where you can get approved for a credit card, um, you have some people that can get approved for a credit card at like a 550 they're just going to have a high APR. But if your credit score is lower than that, if you can't get approved for a credit card and you have a good banking relationship, getting a secured card, even if though you have to like put down a minimum payment of $200, that's actually a way that you can bolster, bolster your score. Um, participating and like um, sometimes uh, magazines like Finger Hut, they send stuff to you <laughs> in the mail. And a lot of people like, my granny used to shop there, so I don't want to shop there. But those are actually companies that are more lenient when it comes to credit and they also report to the credit bureau so they can help you build your score mm-hmm. um self-lender is actually a wonderful wonderful tool that we use with our clients especially uh so self-lender is an installment loan having an installment loan is a part of your credit mix installment loans can be like a student loan car loan house loan but if you don't have that self-lender actually has a wonderful service that it provides where you actually set up a savings account with them and so you're paying into the savings account you pick the terms i think um they go from 24 months and up but you you're paying yourself over the course of that loan and they're actually reporting the payments that you're making to yourself to all three of the credit people so it's helping you build positive credit and save at the same time and then at the conclusion of that loan period you actually have all of those funds saved up and available to you you can request it Oh, that's great. So those are some ways to, those are some ways that you can bolster your credit score. If you already have credit, watching your utilization on your credit card is so essential. It's not even funny. Um, your utilization on your credit card should not be more than 30%. What this means is if you have a credit card and your credit limit is $300, at any given time, your balance should not be any higher than $90. If it goes higher than $90, you're actually penalized for that in terms of your credit score. You lose points. Oh. And I've seen people that have, their credit scores have literally dropped from the 700s all the way to the mid-500s. And it was solely based on them charging up stuff mm-hmm. and having high utilization rates mm-hmm. versus their, you know, their credit limit. So that's horrible. Of course, um, making sure you pay things on time is also important because late payments also have a high impact on your credit score. Right, it'll definitely bring down the score. Yeah, it brings down the score. It brings down the score. So you can have like 24 months of good payment. One late payment can drop your score up to like 80 points. Just one. Wow. So you need to make sure that you're paying for the items that you have on time. And just keeping track of that and monitoring things. And then in addition to that, applying for too many things at one time. And I've seen this too. People don't realize this. Inquiries stay on your credit report. Hard inquiries stay on your credit report for up to two years. And so if you have somebody, and this often happens when people go apply for cars, actually, which is why we don't recommend at all that you go to a car dealership and apply through them. Because when you apply for a, a car at a car dealership, they actually shop your loan around. To see who takes it. And so you can get up to 60 inquiries (laughs) just from going to one car dealership. Mm. And if you have a lot of inquiries on your credit report, it actually impacts negatively and it can drop your score. Wow. Now that's good to know. Okay. um, When it comes to a, a 401k, Explain the benefits of that. So, um, a 401k is a tax advantage contribution retirement account. Generally, they are offered by employers to their employees. Workers make tax-free contributions to their 401k accounts where they can, and it's usually done through payroll withholding, and their contributions are matched according to the company's policies and procedures. 
So having a good employer does come in handy here because employers can actually match employees anywhere from 50 to 100% of what they're contributing to their own 401k. And the contributions are tax-free. 401ks are not taxed when you're making the contribution. However, if the employee does come into an instance where they have to make a withdrawal of the money, that's generally when they are taxed. Unless they're older than 59 and a half, because at that point they're considered to be at retirement age, and then the withdrawals are tax-free. One of the things that I do think that's pretty awesome about... um, 401k is that they do have exemptions to usually if you take out a 401k before a withdrawal before the age of 59 and a half you're taxed a 10% penalty by the IRS however there are certain circumstances that can exempt you from having to pay that penalty to the IRS and I think having that back door can be beneficial because for some employees it gives them the opportunity to like say let's say if you were going to school Mm-hmm. And you wanted to take money out of your 401k, qualified education expenses are actually exempt for that 10% penalty. If you had excessive medical bills that were in excess of 10% of your gross income, then you would be able to take out a withdrawal from your 401k. And the happiest one for me, if you are uh, looking to buy a home and you're a first time homeowner, and you don't have the money for down payment, you can actually withdraw the funds from your 401k, and it's actually exempt from that 10% penalty from the IRS. So 401k can actually help you achieve great things in life if you manage them responsibly. Hmm. Okay. That sounds good. Now, my, my next question here is, now it's tax season is coming up, tax time. So... <laughs> Tell me the difference between filing jointly versus separately. For married. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So married individuals, um, when they file jointly, they are eligible to receive, um, if they have dependents, they're eligible to receive their income credit. If one of them is in school, they're eligible to receive the education credit. In a sense, because they're joint, they're eligible for all of the tax credits that are present. Versus if you have a couple that's filing separately, because they're filing separately, they're automatically disqualified from being able to receive the earned income credit. Even if one of them is in school, they're automatically disqualified from being able to get the education credit. And so a lot of the benefits uh, and the credits that are involved in terms of taxes are not eligible when you're utilizing the married filing separate status. Individuals that use that status are usually people that are married that do not want to be financially liable for one another. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you're married, filing joint, and your spouse owes student loans, and they're not paying their student loans, they want a default status. If you're filing jointly, the Department of Education can actually go ahead and put in a request for your tax return to be offset for the amount that's owed to the Department of Education. And they'll come in, even though you work, you didn't have anything to do with the debt, but because you're married, filing joint, they'll actually come and retrieve those funds from your tax return. Versus if you're married, filing separate, neither one of you are liable for one another financially at that point. Both of you are separate. So you would just get your return, your spouse will file separately and get their return taken. <laughs> right. So depending on your situation, there's a, uh, um, a good and a bad about that. Yeah, it can be negative or it can be positive. Um, right. I actually think that the people that file jointly are, are kind of romantic and responsible too right. because they're willing to put everything in together and go all in together versus the people that are filing separately. They're like, look, that's your stuff over there. This is my stuff over right. here. Right. Don't cross this line. <laughs> I see, yeah, I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, now... What is a dependent? Because I know some people, a lot of people who I've come across anyway, they have a hard time trying to figure out what qualifies as or who qualifies as a dependent. Uh, And the lines are so clear cut. Uh, For people that want to actually know or um, have questions about what a dependent is, I always say this. IRS.gov is an awesome resource. It's like an online encyclopedia of any term that you could ever want to define in terms of tax, tax purposes. So a dependent, a dependent,
either a qualifying child or a qualifying relative. This is actually somebody that is related to you. You know, it's your son, your daughter, your niece, your nephew, stepson, stepdaughter. It can even be, you know, a cousin in some instances. But generally, it's a qualifying relative that's under the age of 19. They can actually be up to 24 if they're in school. They can only be up to 24 if they're in school. And this individual has to have lived with you at least six months out of the year. This is where most people drop the ball. They actually have to live and you have to provide over half of their care throughout the year. Oh. <laughs> and in a sense that they, the dependent themselves cannot make more than $4,200 within that year's time frame in order to be considered as a dependent. How much was that again? $4,200. Oh. <laughs> now, What's a tax credit? A tax credit is any amount of money that taxpayers can subtract from the taxes owed to their government. Right? So the way that it's used, it's used to reduce the amount that you owe. Like kind of like the own the earned income credit that reduces the amount that you owe to the government and in the same instance you're credited some of those funds back on your return. That's what a, what a tax credit is. Okay, and what about a tax deduction? A tax deduction is like in complete contrast to that. So when you deduct something from your taxes, a deduction actually lowers an individual's tax liability by lowering his taxable income. So it's directly correlated. Um, perfect example, if I made $30,000 a year, but I also had a business and I experienced a $10,000 loss in my business, even after I, I could have made $5,000 in my business mm-hmm. and experienced a ten or $15,000 loss. That would take my income from being $30,000 to either being $20,000 or $15,000 that the IRS will look, look at in terms of what am I taxable for and what do I need to pay income taxes on. All right. So these deductions are generally subtracted from the gross income that an individual has that's used to determine what their taxable income is and how much they should pay in tax throughout the year. Okay. Now, let's get back to credit cards. Now, we are we are, you already spoke about the um now I want to talk about credit card abuse. You know, one of the things that was mentioned is when we're not paying on time. So is there any other thing? Is there any, any other thing that you want to talk about as far as credit card abuse? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, that's another point for you to touch on utilization. I don't think that when, when people uh, charge up their credit cards, they don't realize how lenders look at them. So credit card abuse is going over 30% of your eligible credit limit because the higher you go, the riskier you look towards lenders. But you think about it. When you have somebody that's borrowing money, if somebody were to borrow money from you and there was a 90% chance that they weren't going to pay you back, would you lend them the money? Yeah, I see what you're saying. (laughs) For people that, if I have a $300 credit balance and, well, if I have a $300 credit limit and my balance is $290, that's like a 90% chance that I'm not going to pay back. Right. Because usually when people um, get charged off accounts, they go hard and they, then they go home. Meaning that they don't get a charge off when the balance is like $10 or $20. So the, the, the balance is usually like either at the credit limit or sometimes it's even over the credit limit when the account is charged off. So the closer you are to that credit limit, the more likely it's looking to the lender that you're not going to pay those funds back. If, if you have a $5,000 credit limit and your balance is at $4,900, they are looking at you like, you know what, it's a possibility that we're not going to get this back. Because at that point, what you're showing the lender is that you're not doing well and you're not being responsible with the credit that was granted to you. Right. Exactly. They can probably look at your spending habits at that point and they can see that you're not utilizing credit for need. You're utilizing credit 
for once and you're just spending frivolously. You're buying clothes or purses, things that you could like really put off to a different time mm-hmm. and you're not using your credit responsibly. So that's definitely that definitely is what credit card abuse is. Um, I would definitely recommend, especially when you are first starting with credit, to keep your balances lower. And to only purchase items that you know that you'll be able to pay the balance off of within a short time frame. Mm-hmm. You know, the most wealthy people and the smartest people in terms of finances, they actually try to pay the balance off in full within a 30-day time frame because that's how you actually get over on the credit card company versus them getting off of, getting over on you. Right. Because if you pay it off within the first 30 days, you don't even have to pay any interest rate on the amount that you use or you borrow versus if you're stretching it out now you have interest fees every month and a lot of people don't realize your interest fees add up right and if you have a high balance and they're charging you interest fees and then you're not paying on time so they charge you late fees now you have like 30 to 40 dollars worth of just fees mm-hmm. being added to your balance on top of what you owe as your minimum payment too in a lot of situations depending on how much the interest has gone up to you you're basically paying on the interest and not even hitting that you know the meat of it the meat of that pay, right you're payments. not even hitting the, you're not even hitting the the balance at right. all and so you're just placing yourself in a position where you're going to be paying this off over uh, a length of time and when you actually look at it long term the people who you borrow from don't care because it benefits them right if we if you spend three hundred dollars and with the interest rate and fees and over the course of the amount of time that you want to go to pay us back three hundred, we get six hundred. Are we complaining? <laughs> right. Mm. <laughs> we just thankful that you're paying how you're paying. So yeah. Now also I, I noticed at this time of the year, there are a lot of scammers out here who know that people are getting ready to come into some money with tax refunds. Because I myself, I'll get calls that'll say various things like, "Oh, you um um you owe some money, blah blah blah." And I know good and well. I first of all, you're not saying who you are. I don't owe I don't owe anything out. But yet they they'll try to use scare tactics, and it's work. It works on some some people because I have some friends who they they've been scared into giving up information thinking that they're going to be arrested tell me about some of these things that that you know of or ways to spot Um, well one um, people just need to be aware of their rights even if it's a collection company and you owe them they can't call you and threaten to get you locked up so the ones that call you and threaten oh we're going to press charges we're going to have you locked up that's an automatic sign of a scammer because there are laws in place to protect you from collection agencies actually being able to contact you and do that. Um, also, if it's a collection agency and they call and they call you, you have the right as a consumer to tell them that you don't want them calling you anymore and that whatever it is, send it to you in writing. Mm-hmm. I would also tell them to refuse to verify any information because a lot of times you're giving them information that they don't even have. Right. I can Google you. And I can maybe get your address and your phone number, but I can't get your date of birth. I can't get your social security card and I can't get your bank information. So this is all information that if I have you on the phone, you can give to me, which is why we definitely tell our clients, do not verify any information over the phone. Just politely let them know to send it to you in writing. Right. I'm also glad that you mentioned scammers because you are right around this time. People often complain about getting phone calls from the IRS. Mm-hmm. I do need to say the IRS does not call anybody. <laughs> right, right. Any any correspondence or information from the IRS is transmitted via mail. They send you a letter via mail. So if, if someone ever gets a phone call saying, "Oh, this is the IRS," it is absolutely not the IRS. And that is a scammer and they should hang up and not give them any information or send them any money. Because unfortunately, for the people who fall for those scams, once they send the money, there's no way that they can get it back. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, student loans. Um, 
What are some of the best ways to pay them off? Are, are there government assistance programs out there to help pay them? So I'm going to start with this and I'm going to leave with this. The best thing to do is not to put yourself in a position to get student <laughs> loans. I promise you I'm going to answer your question, but I just have to say that. Especially for people that have younger children, mm. um, there are so many programs, there are so many scholarships out there for you to actually look at for your children ahead of time. You can actually start applying for scholarships. Your child can actually start applying for scholarships when they're in the 10th grade. And I was actually blessed to get this information from LA. Her name is Abby Puppleby. She's on Facebook. But she actually was blessed to be able to get both of her daughters enough scholarships to actually pay for their full college tuition. One of her daughters became an accountant and I believe the other daughter became a bio bio engineer, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. But she was able to get them enough, enough scholarships to cover that amount just by being proactive versus reactive. However, for those of us who didn't have parents or didn't know the information and were already in student loan, in the student loan world, right. because it is a world that does exist, um, the best thing for you to do is to look and see if there are any programs eligible for, for your particular field. I know for a fact there's like a student loan forgiveness program for teachers. There's a student loan forgiveness program for public service workers. So for a public service worker, if you're in the public service field, you start the process. They'll put you on a payment plan. You pay your student loans on time for 10 years. They come back and they reevaluate the plan. And then they actually forgive either all or a portion of your student loans. So being aware of programs that are out there meant to help you. And again, a lot of them are based on your particular field. I think it's essential when it comes to student loans. But also uh, being aware of your own options. Like if you you have student loans and they have a high APR, you may want to look at consol- consolidating your student loans to get all the loans into one payment mm-hmm. to make it more manageable for you to handle you know on a monthly basis if you feel like you can't pay your student loan back or you feel like you're not making a love you can actually contact your student loan provider and they can put you on an income-based repayment plan that takes into consideration the amount of money that you're actually bringing in and it, it gives you a payment that'll put you in a position where it's not such a hardship for you to be making your student loan pay okay great information don't want to do is try to defer forever because some people do that. I'm going to defer until I die. That is what some people are going to try to do. That is not what you want to do. <laughs> okay. And I got um, got a, just a few more questions here. How would you start a budget? How, how would you start? Because I, I, some people would think, well, either I'm too far in now or I'm too old. But, um, I've, I've come to find out, hey, just as long as you start and be consistent with it. So how would you start a budget? Um, you're never too old to start a budget. So I definitely root you on there. Um, it definitely is something that you have to be consistent with. Starting a budget is the first step towards taking control over your finances. And with your money, either you will control your money or your money will control you. People who find themselves in debt are actually living a lifestyle that allows their money to control them. So starting a budget starts with examining your debt, examining your monthly bills. Um, If you have a significant other, it would be, of course, your conjoined monthly bill. Mm -hmm. You need to know where every dollar is going. This means that, you know, if you're in a house, whether you be in a house or an apartment, you're pulling how much you pay for mortgage. You're pulling how much you pay for rent. You're looking at the amount that you're spending on lights, on gas, and on different things. Because a lot of times people don't even realize they're paying money out for services that they don't even need. And I'll give an example with this. Um, I had cable for Uverse for the longest. But Uverse for the longest. And my contract, I think all of my little specials that fell off in the cable bill was over $254 a month. For cable, internet, and the home phone. And... As a parent, the bulk of the reason why I had cable was, you know, for my daughter. Because I wanted her to be able to have access to all the little children's stories and the children, you know, shows, Disney, Disney Plus, Boom, all of those channels. My daughter's a teenager. One day, 
She just told me, Mom, I don't even watch TV. I watch YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and Netflix. Mm-hmm. And that's it. <laughs> right. Both of those are services that, that are available via streaming. Mm-hmm. You don't need cable for YouTube or Netflix. And so I cut my cable bill. <laughs> So, and, ba- and basically, it's just a matter of realizing what you, what excesses you have and really don't need anymore and get rid of mm-hmm. it. Yes, and trimming them. It's actually exploring, um, David Botch calls it your latte factor. And he always has. It's realizing what your latte factor is. What is it that you need? And the latte factor comes from a story about uh, somebody who was going to Starbucks every day and buying lattes every day. You don't need a latte every day. And so he challenged that person to calculate out how much they were spending per day on Starbucks, times that by per month, times that by per year. It makes you take it into a different perspective. So it's actually looking at not only what your bills are, but also what habits are you engaging in. Um, As working adults, sometimes we eat out a lot. I can remember at one point I was going to eat out every day. Well, if you're taking into consideration on average, you spend between five to ten dollars per transaction that you're stopping at. That's like fifty dollars a week you're spending mm-hmm. just to eat out, and you already have groceries at home, but you're eating out anyway. And it's no- so it definitely is about <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with leftovers. Yeah, nothing wrong with leftovers. So it's about looking at your latte factors and where you're spending money at, where you can kind of trim back and repurpose those funds for something else that'll actually be better for you in the long term. Mm-hmm. You know, you could stop eating out. And then start bringing your um, your your lunch from home. Bring those leftovers in. You know, love on those leftovers. It's okay. Right. You know, you can stop going out as much, or you can budget that. You know, sometimes there are things that you need to do, but some people do it too frequently. You can say, okay, I'm going to eat out once a week. Well, I'm still saving forty dollars if I'm eating out once a week versus five. Okay. Great. Work. That's right. <laughs> and last question for you. Now I heard that um, I heard uh, someone say never pay off a debt to a debt collection agency. Is this true that you make um other um what's the word I'm want to use here? Other concessions to pay off your debt, but never pay off to a debt collection yeah. agency. Um, that is correct. You definitely so um, if you look at your credit report, and this is anyone. Anytime a collection is listed on your credit report, it's listed as a derogatory account. Any derogatory account on your credit report is actually impacting your credit score negatively. So you have debt collection agencies that contact people and they get people, they make sweet deals on the phone and they get people to pay them. And when they pay them, the only thing that that collection agency does is they go in and they update the debt from being unpaid to paid. And it's still in a derogatory category, and it's still negatively impacting your credit score. So I will say this. A paid collection does weigh a little bit differently than an unpaid collection, but both still negatively affect your credit score. And so you, in a sense of paying them, thinking that it's going to be gone, your situation is going to be better, your credit score is going to increase, and none of that happens because it's still there. Right. So... If you are going to pay off a debt, the thing to do, especially if you're a consumer, is to attempt to contact the debt collection debt collection agency and to negotiate with them to give you an amount that you will pay them in return for them deleting the collection account from your credit report. And you need to get that from them in writing. If they are unable to give that to you in writing, then I would not send them anything because the results are still going to be the same. Now, if they do give you that document in writing and you negotiate, you know, your terms in terms of what you want to pay them, then by all means, pay off that amount because you can then send that letter in writing to the credit review bureau or you can then dispute it from your credit report and then it could come off permanently and that will actually help your credit score versus if you just tried to pay it off and it's still on your credit report, and you thought you were solving a problem that still exists today. Hmm. That is that not again. That's great information to have. And 
I want to add something in here also before before we end it. And for me, me being a man of God, which and we're talking about um, finances and so forth. Now, for me, first and foremost, is the first tithe, ten percent to God, to be in line and be in order with everything, and and then you know take everything else after do everything else after that that that's me and i just wanted to add that in there too but um i want to thank you janita for your input it's been very beneficial and helpful and also i would like for you to tell the people where they can get in touch with you also if so to um to get any um financial help so go ahead and, and let them know or if you have um, any additional questions that you need, you can get in contact with us um, at our website at www.infinitepotentialfinancial.com. On our website, you can actually schedule a credit consultation or a tax consultation if you need help in any of those areas. Um, if you need assistance setting up your business or even building business credit, you can set up consultations and we'll be more than happy to assist you. If you have questions, you can email us at info at infinitepotentialfinancial.com. Or you can give us a call at 888-486-0228. And we'll be more than happy to assist you with your financial needs. Wonderful, wonderful. God bless you for, and thank you for coming on. And like I said, just being a wealth of information and helping helping people out. Because that, that's, the, that's the main thing, being, being helpful to others. Because there's a lot of people out here that really we need to be educated on on finances because we hadn't been brought up that way and now's the time to start well god bless you for inviting me i'm so happy and humbled and honored to be able to share my information i hope it definitely helps someone out there today to make a better change and better financial decisions in the future and i hope that everybody has a blessed and profitable prosperous and fruitful 2020 <laughs> <laughs> and we got we got de- we have to definitely do this again because there's yeah, a lot more there's a lot more questions <laughs> a lot more i know this is like round one anytime i'll be more than happy um to fit you in my schedule and come on and and talk anytime just let me know all right thank you all right thanks bye bye